Good morning, everybody. Okay, we're starting our Midrashim Real Part 2. And today the title is based on the Yon of the Yoma, Vashti's Tail. And the question that was raised on Shabbos was, how do you spell tail? So it depends what you have in mind. The tail of Vashti's Tail. Last week we, uh, we saw the Rambam in the parish of Mishnayis where he went through sociologically how did people feel about Midrashim? And he categorized three different groups. The first group was the simple maminim. They believe everything they read on face value. And on one hand, that's a beautiful thing. They have the munapshuta. On the other hand, the Rambam says in a very powerful line, they think they're raising the banner of the Chachamim and honoring them because they're believing in every word they say. But the truth is, because they understand the words of Chazal so incredibly superficially, they're really bringing down the honor and the reverence due to the Chachamim. But that was group number one. Group number two was the group where they also read Chazal superficially and they were not willing to believe what it said because oftentimes it sounds very strange and therefore they would actually ridicule and make fun of the Chazal and that's uh, obviously a group you want to stay far away from and the third group the Rambam tells us not really a group there are very few people who have this level of sophistication but the third group is comprised of people who know very well that there's a lot more than meets the eye. Everything Chazal say in Agada and the Drashim, it's all true, but it's not to be understood all the time at face value. And that is the group we're striving to be part of. Only problem is, that makes life very complicated. In group one and two, things are black and white. In group three, things are gray, and we have to figure out the tools, how to decipher the words of Chazal to be valid members of group three. We saw the Maral, where he spoke about finding a conflict between science and what we find in the Agada, and his main point here was, oftentimes, if not all the time, although it sounds like Chazal might be trying to give a reason in the physical world, either you know, biologically speaking or trying to touch up a cosmology, that's not really what's going on. Chazal are giving the Siba for the Siba, which means the, medical, the meta, metaphysical reason for the physical phenomenon. And that's why oftentimes, says the morale, people make a mistake and they think Chazal are trying to explain the physical world, when in reality they don't care about the physical world. That's not their ASIC, that's not their, uh, their place to put their energy and time. They're giving us the deeper reasons as to why the world is what it is. And then we started last week the Rambam. The Rambam in Perak Chalik, he gives us three different reasons as to why did Chazal write the Agadah or compose the Midrashim in such a cryptic way. So granted, we know many of them are not to be taken literally, but why do you make them so confusing? Just tell me what you mean. So the first answer we saw at the end of last week, which was somewhat of a surprising approach, the Rambam told us that... 
We are on the, the first pamphlet that we had from last week on page three. And this is the bottom right hand. I apologize. This is actually, this is Rav Chaim Friedlander, where he said the two most difficult things about deciphering a Gada is number one, intrinsically it's sosum, it's very uh, cryptic. And number two, he said, we don't have the training Right, learning in yeshiva for many years, we still don't have the tools to decipher Agado. Those are the two difficulties in, in approaching any, any midrashic source. On page number four, that was the Rambam. We're on the bottom of page the, uh, four on the right. The Rambam says the first reason as to why Chazal wrote these midrashim so cryptically in a hidden way is in order to be machaded to sharpen the mind of the Talmidim. And at first glance, that's a very difficult reason, because you're basically risking being misunderstood. You know, okay, it might be nice for us gathering together as Talmidim, it's going to sharpen our skills, but you're, you're taking a massive risk over here. So the way that Reb Chaim Friedlander explained this first reason of the Rambam, is that lo maspik yadiya sikhlis elet sarikh gam havanas alev. What the Rambam is really telling us is that in order to understand agada, it's not just an intellectual grasp, but there needs to be some level of emotional connection. And that emotional connection can only come through some level of discovery. Right? We have to somehow get to it on our own in order to fully appreciate it and relate to it in the way that Chazal had in mind. So that's the first reason the Ram gives us as to why Chazal wrote a Gada in this way. Reason number two. This is the bottom now of page four on the right. Va'od k'day la'aver shelo le'olam. The Rambam says, Chazal were concerned for people who were not exposed or not sophisticated enough to fully grasp these ideas if they were to write their concepts explicitly, so then you would have many people assuming they understand what's being said, but in reality, totally warping the, the ideas and the intent of Chazal. So they felt it necessary to, to make it in a way where it's covered, where you have to somehow decipher it, because otherwise there would be many people who would not be roy for the understanding, they think they would get it, but in reality, they would be distorting much of the, uh, the content. And we find this often, right? Let's say you have somebody learning Kabbalah. Why are they learning Kabbalah? First of all, it's not really Kabbalah, most likely. But why are they interested in learning something called Kabbalah? Mystical. It's mystical, right? I'm not so interested in, in the technicalities of Halacha or Gemara. But Kabbalah is something that's really intriguing. So you go to a class and they teach you something about spheros and klipos and after a while, you know, you think you're, you're getting something. And you could walk away after six weeks of intense Kabbalistic training in different forms of meditation and other things and you could feel like you have a little bit of a tfisa on Kabbalah. Right? I'm not a bucky, but I'm, I'm pretty close. That's a very dangerous thing. So the second reason the Rambam gives is that Chazal did not want people um, distorting this Chachma. He quotes the Pasuk in Shir Shirim, 
that there is honey and milk under your tongue. What does that mean? Explains the Rambam. Chazal explains, The sweetness of wisdom that, that brings pleasantness it needs to be hidden. The sweetness of Chachma requires Tachas Lishonech. It has to be under your tongue. Don't share this with the world if they're not ready to accept it and they may distort it. And that's probably one of the reasons we have the Tainus on the day that they translated the Torah into Greek, right? the Gemara and Megillah. Why do we have a Tainus based on that? So one of the, the reasons given is because now we have a translation of the Torah, and no matter how accurate we try to make that translation, it's now open to the masses, and it's going to be distorted and misapplied. That's the second reason of the Rambam. He does add in parenthetically, the only way to come to a real hasaga, a real grasp of Chazal, is lihispalel alov, is to daven. Right? You can't just get pshat. You have to be roy lekach, you have to have the training, you have to have the misori, you have to have the tools. But one of the most important factors in getting any clarity in Torah is lehispala loves the daven for siyata deshmaya. Like David Amalek writes in Tehillim, Gal enai v'abita niflos misori asacha, Kadosh Baruch Hu, open my eyes so I could see the wonders of your Torah. And the third and final reason the Rambam gives, the top of page 5 on the right, And this is not so politically correct, so we'll have to adjust it. When we're teaching to the masses, and I assume Agada, the Rambam was thinking, was more to the masses in a sense, because when you're getting into Yushalomidas or other complicated issues of, of Shas and Poskim, that's really limited to the realm of the Yeshiva, the people who are studying Gemara, Yom Valayla. But when it comes to Agada, that's going to be shared with many people. And so therefore, it needs to be presented as a mushal or a story. This is before the institution of Beis Yaakov. But uh, let's apply this to Kitanim. You have children who are hearing these concepts. How do you present a very in-depth either Kabbalistic or Hashkafic idea to an eight-year-old child. How do you do that? So the only way is you have it b'derechida u'mashal. It's a story, it's a riddle. And then eventually, when they grow up and their seichel develops and they have more of a, of a connection with learning, then they could go back to those stories they heard in first and second and third grade, all of the Midrashim, and then they could have a deeper insight as to what it actually is saying. So explains to Chaim Friedlander, really Chazal had this contradiction, they had this dilemma. On one hand, we can't just tell you what we mean because, number one, you have to discover it yourself, you have to break through, it has to be an emotional connection. And we don't want the information out there for the masses to be distorted. And when it comes to people who are not on that level to really grasp these ideas, 
There's no way to say it explicitly. But on the other hand, we don't want to keep these ideas hidden totally because we want the Torah world to be exposed to them. So therefore, we make a pshara, we have a compromise, we take a middle ground, we're going to teach you all of these ideas through a mashal. And when you're younger, or even if I'm not younger, but I don't know really what Chazal is teaching me, eventually your mind will expand, and you'll have more of a, of a connection to Torah, and you'll realize what Chazal meant. So, here we have the stories in the Mishalim where they're ingrained in the hearts of those who are listening to them. Even though at this stage of our learning we might not really get it. But through the mashal, through the story, through the riddle, it's now in our head. And as we develop and mature in our learning, and we know how to approach Chazal, then we'll understand the Misholim, we'll get the, uh, the allegories and the metaphorical allusions, and then we'll delve into the real meaning and intent of Chazal. So many times people ask the question, how in the world do you teach any Midrashim in school? Right? When you have kids who are too young to appreciate, there's something called metaphor, mashal, melitza, chida. At, at many of the younger ages, I know two concepts. It's either true or it's not true. You're telling me it's true, but don't take it literally. That means nothing to me. I'm not developed enough to understand that. So maybe it's not worth teaching Madrashim at all. They're not going to get it. So one could argue based on this Rambam, now this still requires a lot of Chachma and discussion, and we're going to see different sources from Rav Hirsch and others, as to how much Madrashim should we be teaching, and what kind of Madrashim, and how do we present them. But the basic argument would be, don't hold back from sharing the Madrashim or the Rashi's quoting Chazal, even though the children will not understand the intent, and it could be even the Rebbe, doesn't understand the intent. It's a different question. But don't hold back from sharing them because at least to have the picture, to have the tsura, to have the image of Chazal in your head is a very productive thing. And this way, Mitzvah as they grow, they could have a deeper understanding of what Chazal actually meant. That would be an argument, don't hold back from teaching Midrashim. We have a similar conversation when it comes to davening. When we teach kids davening in school, so when they're first learning Moda'ani and different brachos and the Siddur and the Pesukah de Zimra, whatever they're doing, how many of them are being machave into the meaning of the words? The answer is zero. Right? Maybe an Israeli is a little bit better. But any kid going to Torah Academy or any yeshiva in America, when they're, they're saying a bracha and they're davening in the younger ages, you're basically training them to daven without kavana. So you could argue, don't start teaching them how to daven when they're in first and second grade. Obviously, teach them the basic skills of Hebrew and shrashim. But when it comes to davening, don't mess them up. Wait until they're in fifth and sixth grade 
where perhaps they could understand what they're saying as they're saying it, and then davening for the rest of their lives could be a more meaningful experience. So it sounds like a pretty decent argument. The only problem is that's not the Mesorah. That has never been the Mesorah. So how do we explain, why does it make sense to teach them how to daven, even though at this point in time they're not really understanding a word they're saying? Based on this Rambam, we have an explanation. The Rambam would tell us, start it off. They have to be ruggling it. They have to be, they have to be used to saying the words. And they're not going to have an appreciation. But in Mirza Shem, as they grow, assuming it's, it's made of focus, and it's something we actually want to teach them, so then we'll teach them, slowly but surely, the depth and the meaning and then the real relationship with davening. But don't wait off until the fifth and sixth grade. But what if you look at the system that exists now and it's not, it's not the case, it's not the focus. You never do come back. So it's, and we have a very systematized system. And I think that's a question really on davening, on midrashim, on many of these things. Because the Missouri is we start off at a young age, but the real question is, when do we ever get back, once we're more developed and more mature, to understand things in a deeper way? That's a good question. But at least we have an argument here from the Rambam that it makes sense to start young. Yeah, I think adults have an issue with Kavana. I mean, I talk for myself. I would speak for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. All right, so those are the three reasons the Rambam gives as to why Chazal wrote the Agadah so cryptically. Um, we're going to end off the first pamphlet here with a beautiful mushal from Rechaim Friedlander. He says, as a starting point, how to approach any Agadah is you have to have a solid foundation in the Esodos of Hashkafa. And that's why it takes years to really learn how to learn Agadah. He gives the following example. If you were to tell somebody, going back 2,000 years ago, living in some village in the middle of nowhere, you were to point up to the sun and tell them, see that tiny ball of fire? That's really 100 times the diameter of planet Earth. And therefore that means it's more than a million times the volume of planet Earth they would look at you and think you're crazy. A million times the volume of planet Earth? That's clearly a tiny little speck of uh, fire, and we're a lot bigger. The only way that makes sense is once you understand the sun is 93 million miles away, and obviously it could be a lot bigger than planet Earth, but because it's so far away, it doesn't look like it's big, then everything makes sense. So oftentimes, says Rav Chaim Friedlander, we'll be reading a Chazal, and it'll say something that doesn't seem to make any sense, but that's because we don't know how far away the sun is, meaning to say there are certain fundamental ideas in Hashkafa, or even Halacha sometimes, that we're not aware of, and therefore the presentation of Chazal is so incredibly difficult. But the more we have different pieces coming together, so then we have the tools to decipher what Chazal really had in mind. Let's jump to Vashti's tale. I want to do this just for a moment. Number one is because we're right before Purim. But also I think we see that looking at the Rishonim and the Achronim, there are different approaches in how to decipher Chazal. And it was not always agreed upon as to whether something is to be taken literally or if it's more of a marshal. 
The Gemara Megillah Daf Yud Beis tells us that Vashti, the Vashti refused to go to the party that Achashverosh invited her to. She wanted to stay with the Nashim. So the Gemara has an interesting question. We know that Vashti was a prutza. She was not sneer. She was not modest. My time, Melo Asiya. So why didn't she go? It's true they were asking her to do something so demeaning, but she's not a tsnua. So why wouldn't she go? Right there, it is, is that she had saras and she was embarrassed to go to where the men were because she had this affliction on her skin. And we also learn a second pshat, this is in brackets. Why is it in brackets, by the way? So the Masifta actually quoted the Dasofrim that explained it's in brackets because this line was taken out by the censors. And only later on it was placed back in. But the second shot of the Gemara is, Ba Gavriel the Gavriel the Malach came and gave her a tail. And usually, you know, you have like, uh, you know, some pimples, you could put some makeup on. It's very hard to cover up a tail. Right? You try that, it's very difficult. So that's why she didn't want to come. Parenthetically, there's a beautiful schmooze here, not in the answer, but on the question. What was the question of the Gemara? Why didn't she come? She was a prutza. She wasn't so modest anyway. Why wasn't she so modest? So Chazal teach us that when she made the party for the women, they bedafka did it in a way where the men could be looking and they wanted to show off their beauty. So we see that she wasn't modest. If that's the case, when she was invited to come to Achashverosh without anything on, why wouldn't she come? She was a prutza. What kind of question is that? It, maybe she wasn't, she wasn't super modest, right? She wasn't a Beziako girl. But this level of prutzas, maybe she wouldn't feel comfortable. Why do we have to make up terutzim? She had saras, she had a zonav. Maybe she just didn't feel comfortable with that level of prutzas. Good question, no? So you see from the question of the Gemara, that once a person is pouring together, once I'm, I'm pushing out of the barriers and limitations of proper hanhaga and behavior, even though if you would have asked me before, would I feel comfortable doing something so incredibly preetzistic, I probably would have said no. But once I'm not confined by the gedarm of the Torah, I'm making up my own, my own structure of what I feel comfortable with and what's okay and what's not okay. So then when push comes to shove, if I know my life is on the line, I'll do it. It's only if I'm living from my values that no matter what comes, no matter how strong the winds blow, nothing's going to phase me and take me away from my Das Torah. So then I'm not going to do anything. Even when there's stress involved, even when there's anxiety or peer pressure. But you see from the Gemara's question, this awesome hashkafa. Once you're pure together, you'll do anything under stress. And that's why the answer had to be, there was something crazy or perhaps supernatural that happened. Either she had saras or she had a zonav. So what does it mean she had a zonav? And why is this the only thing that the little kids know about the story of the Megillah, right? <laughs> there are a few things that kids know about Megillah's Esther. One thing is that Vashti had a tail. The Rashba would say, 
Vashti never actually had a tail. <laughs> Says the Rashba in his Pirish Agados. She'ein hakavana she'osel son of mamish. It doesn't mean she actually had a tail. So what happened? He says, really, the term rosh always has the connotation of a makom chashuv, of something important. And zonav, we know, has the opposite connotation. Kinui ledover cholash miyutar. So in this particular case, really what happened is that Vashti had something that was causing her busha, that was causing her embarrassment. Maybe it was a wart, maybe it was a pimple. There's a song about that the kids know, right? And then the Gemara is using the term zonav just as a way of describing something that took away from her beauty. But it's ein kavana sha'asala zonav mamish, that is the sheet of the Rashba. Comes along the Marsha, and the Marsha is really in wonderment. Madu'a lahotzi ha-Gemara pshuto. Why does the Rashba feel the need to interpret the Gemara outside of the Pashat reading? The Gemara says it was a zonav. Why would the Rashba change that? Says the Marsha, of course you could read the Gemara in this simple reading that Chitaka had a tail, just like a behemoth. So what's the machlokas? What would you suggest? The machlokas here between the Rashba and the Marsha is. We don't want to make it too big. We don't want to make it a universal debate. But the Rashba felt the need to be motzi the Gemara mi pshuto, to take out the Gemara from its simple understanding. It doesn't mean son of mamish, mamish, it means uh, something that was not beautiful. And the Marsha is arguing back, why do you have to say that? Maybe it literally means she grew a tail. Maybe, you're talking. What's that machlokas? So I think we see this as an example where even amongst the Gedolei Olam, right, the greatest of Torah personalities, the Rashba and the Marsha, we have a debate in this particular Chazal, and we're going to find this in many, many Agadah and Midrashim. Is it meant to be taken literally? Is it meant to be taken metaphorically? The Rashba seems to be more inclined to look at something that, 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 that looks so incredibly miraculous, and tight it up and explain it in a more rational way. And then Marshall was coming from the point of view, why would you feel the necessity to do that? If the Gemara is saying something, then we'll take it at face value. Do you think Hashem couldn't make her a tail? Why not? A lot has to do with their Siva, where they were brought up. You know, it's like, if you're, you know, you could be in Spain where things were more rational and they took a more so I would say that the exact same thing, but a more yeshivish way. <laughs> I would say a lot depends on their mesorah, <laughs> right? On their, on their training and how to decipher these. But, but the point is, this is one interesting example, and there are many examples. Throughout the entire Gemara Megillah, we have these machlokas all the time. Is it meant to be taken at face value? That's what the Gemara says, that's what happened. Or no, we, we don't assume she actually grew a tail. So in Mitzvah Shem, we're going to find some klolim, when we get to the Ramchal and others, we're going to get some basic guiding principles for when would everyone agree something is metaphorical and when would everyone agree something has to be taken literally. Like the stories in the Gemara where there's Machai and Mesim, things like that. It's also the Gemara Megillah. What, Daf, Avi? Daf Zion, right? Right? Rava Shechting Rav Zayra. 
So well, you know what? If you look at the marsha there, what does the marsha say? It wasn't really mechayim mesim. He wasn't really dead. So there the marsha feels that taking it at face value is not the approach. So it's a very complicated sugya. When do you learn something literally? It's not consistent? Well, listen, it, it, obviously the marshal was consistent. We have to understand what his view was to explain the consistency, right? So, Lemaisa, there's a beautiful piece in the Emes Yaakov, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, where he's bothered by the question, why is it that we sometimes find Chazal telling us something that seems to totally contradict the basic meaning of the Pasuk? He says, for example, we have Yehuda's discussion with Yosef before he knew he was Yosef, right? He was the viceroy to, uh, to Paro. So he says, That's the Pashub shot, says Rashi. That when Yehuda tells uh, Yosef, you're like Paro, he was giving him a compliment. I'm looking at you, you're as prestigious as Paro, the ruler of the entire free world. It wasn't the free world, but the ruler of the entire world. Yet Rashi goes on to quote different midrashim, and all of them have a very different connotation. <clears throat> right? One pshat, Rashi says, is, just like Paro who says something and doesn't come through, you also say something and don't come through. Another pshat is, you're just like Paro, meaning to say, if you make me mad, I'll kill you and I'll kill your master. Don't mess with me, says Yehuda. <clears throat> So Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky was bothered, Sarich Levayer, I have to explain. If the simple reading of what Yehuda was telling Yosef was, you're chashiv in my eyes like a king, why would Chazal, the Agada, come along and say something that's the complete opposite? That really they're understanding it as Yehuda is throwing out disgraces at him. How can it be the exact opposite of the simple understanding? So here Rabbi Yaakov shares with us a very fundamental klal in Agada. Every word we say there's always the pshat and there's the drash. Sometimes I would add, we might not even be super conscious of all the underpinnings that we have within our words or why I'm saying it in this particular tone. In other places, he also adds so Oh, Baruch Hashem, we have a Bucky here in Amos Yaakov. <clears throat> he says over here, an example of this would be in Parshas V'yishlach. What is the message that Yaakov sends to Esau when he's trying to get him to accept his presence. I see your face just like the face of angels. If you're reading that superficially, is that a shevach, is that a praise, or is that a threat? I think we'd all agree he's giving him a compliment, right? Your face is a mamish like the face of a malach. Please accept my matana, take my mincha. However, when we look at the Agadah, Rabbi Yaakov tells us that we find a very different connotation. He's basically telling him, you should realize that I've had um, interactions with Malachim, and they don't phase me. So don't think for a second that you have any power over me. I have fought and I have been victorious 
with Malachi Asharis. Don't mess with me, Esav. So it explains Rav Yaakov, again, another example where Pshuto, in the Pashub Shad, he's being mechabed him, or Midrasho, it sounds like he's warning him, he's giving him a threat. Says Rav Yaakov, but they're both true. If I'm telling you, your radiance is like the, the radiance of a malach. So within that phrase, there's many levels of truth. Of course it's a compliment. The pshat is emes. But at the same time, why is Yaakov giving him that particular compliment? Because he wants to inform Esau, by the way, brother, I have exposure to malachim. And when Esau hears that, he'll take it as a compliment, but he'll also take it as a warning. They're both true. Different levels of the message within the message. So explains of Yaakov Kamenetsky, this is now the bottom of the page. He says, Zu hashkafa klolis belimud hamidrashim she'elu ve'elu divrei lokim chayim. That you could find many different midrashim, not just the pshat and the darash, but even different midrashim, where they're all true. All true doesn't mean they're different interpretations and they both have merit or they're both Das Torah. In a more literal sense, Elu ve'elu divrei lokim chayim, oftentimes they could be true on multiple layers. And within the same words of Yaakov to Esau or the same words of Yehuda to Yosef, he could mean many different things, just like we ourselves mean many different things in everything we say. So part of the complexity of deciphering Chazal is not only do we believe maminim b'nei maminim, that it's emis mito, it's true, although it might not be literal, but there are many layers of that truth, and they could all be elu ve'elu divrei lukim chayim. Now, if Yaakov does quote from the famous Vikuach, right, the debate between the Ramban and Pablo Christiani, where in the beginning of that debate, we've spoken about this at length a couple times, the Ramban lays out a few guidelines. And he says, first of all, you should know, you can't ask from Midrasha. Are you trying to prove to me that Yashka is really the savior? Don't bring me Midrashim. Why not? Take a look here at the top of page 7. <coughs> this is the footnote here in the Emes Liyakov. B'sicha pratis omar rabbeinu shemashe kosov ramban v'vikucho im ha-notzrim she'ein anu mukhyovim lahamin l'chol Midrashim chazal. The Ramban said to Pablo, we are not obligated to believe all of the Midrashim of chazal. Let's not use that as a battleground. Who Mishum, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky explained that line of the Ramban. Who Mishum Mimenu He said that because he was a pikeach atzum. The Ramban knew psychologically they would not accept his reading of the Chazal or his, his interpretation of the Agada. How did he know that? Because likely, what category was Pablo and his Hever in in the Rambam's three categories? They were either category one or two, right? Either they would accept it at face value and try to use it as a proof to their warped philosophy, or they would accept it at face value and try to show why you, the Jewish people, are actually wrong. The Ramban was obviously category three, and I can't talk to you in this realm, and therefore he just said, to push it aside, we're not mechuyiv to believe in all of the Midrashim, which is true. We're not mechuyiv to believe in the Midrashim the way they're presented. 
of a lefia emis vaday shekol medrash chazal amitasa, but obviously every every agada is true. What I want to do the last few minutes we have today is analyze when it comes to halachic questions. Can we use agada as a source to paskin a halacha? So obviously we'd assume if we have the Farish Gemara and Babakama telling us one thing and we have uh, Agada seeming, seemingly it says something else, you go with the Gemara. But the question is, if there's no Gemara in contradiction, can we use Agada Midrashim as a valid Makar for Paschating Halacha? Don't we say that Allah will never have Yes, where do we say that? We're going to test your Yerushalmi skills here. So the question is how to learn that Yerushalmi. Let's take a look here, famous tshuva of the Noda Yehuda. <coughs> Number seven. Yes. What? Don't we say that we don't learn halacha from Magadha? Which is quoting the Yerushalmi, which we're going to explore now at great length. Not that great, but... So it sounds like someone is writing. You have a question? If there are sources in halacha that come from Magadha today... We're going to explore it as well. That's going to be the Nishmas of Ram. That's surrogacy. We have a lot to do in five minutes. Um, so the, the Nadu Behuda writes back to the show, the one presenting the question, second line here. Why do you have to give me this whole essay explaining to me, the Nadu Behuda, how important and how real Agada is? Who is the fool? To, who would dare darken the, the radiance of Agatha? Balitain Dofi, Bedivri Agatha, Vachol Divri Bali, Hatalmud, Kulam Nitu, Meroa Echad, it all comes from the same source, it's all Emes Lamito. Ve'ain Behem Divri Reik, Ubatel, there's nothing that's empty or void in the words of Agatha. Vimreiku, Meitonuhu, Lakotzer Sichlenu, and if we view anything as strange or awkward, obviously that's a lacking in us, not a lacking in the Chazal. <coughs> We're just going to read the underlined pieces together. He says, When a person has the time, of course, he should delve in with all of his uh, capacity to divri He was saying, he's explaining what he said in a previous tshuva. He said, I was only telling you that I don't respond to words of a God. I'm not going to have a whole back and forth with you in how to understand this particular midrash and apply halacha lemaisa. That's what I was telling you. Ki kol divrei rezal bedivrei agada segurim v'sumim because all of the words of Chazal and Agada are closed and they're hidden. V'kulam koshim lahavin and they're all so difficult to understand. V'imbonu lahashiv bahem and if we got into this back and forth ein ledover sof we could go on for hours we could go on for years. Ubefrat ish kamoni, and for sure somebody like me, Asher Ol Harabim Al Yodi, I have the responsibility of the masses on my shoulders, Shani Nifna Lahashib Badavahanogelamaisa, I have to spend my time and energy paskating real halakhalamaisa questions. So he's saying, of course, if you have time, then you should be focused, you know, Bachol Koko on understanding the depth of any agada. I don't have that much time, and that's why I'm not going to get into a back and forth with you. But obviously, it's all emes lamitu, it's all true. He says, look at the Rashba, for example. It's true the Rashba is mefalpel in Agada. 
he has many essays going through Agada. And that makes sense, because he was the Rashba. He had more time, he had more of a capacity than I do. At the same time, says the Nebuchadnezzar Yehuda, the famous Kasha of Tosas in the Gemara and Megillah. The Gemara says that we know when Esther went to Achashverosh for the last time, she was doing it Biratzon, because she wasn't called by Achashverosh, but rather she went on her own volition. And therefore, that would be the end of her marriage to Mordechai. Kasheravadati Yavadati. So Tosas has the question, one second, I have a very simple Eitzim. Let Mordechai give you a get before you go to Achashverosh. You're going to Achashverosh and the Gemara and Sanhedrin speaks out for the salvation of Kalal Yisrael. I get it. But don't jeopardize your marriage. Let him give you a get before you go. And in Hashem afterwards, you could always uh, get married again. So the Rashba says, and he first addresses the answer of Tosus, he doesn't like it, but he says, Ein misyashvim We don't ask questions on Divriyagada. Meaning to say, Pashib Shadav Megillah, Esther was not married to Mordechai. Right? Torah Shabalpet teaches us that she was married to Mordechai. That's one valid shot in the Megillah. So, but now you have a question on Agada in a very practical, technical sense. Hey, just give a get and avoid the whole issue of being ushered to your husband. To that, the Rashba says, that's not a valid question. So why is that not a valid question? Because it's a gada. So if you, if you misunderstand that Rashba, you would say, not a valid question because it's not true. Says the Nada Behuda, of course it's true, but there's so much here in the Agada, it's sosum, it's hidden, you can't ask practical, technical questions on Agada. He goes on to say, right, we have the Rishalmi. The Rishalmi says, She'ein lemeidin lo min halachos, lo min agados, velo min atosephtos, gumara. You're not allowed to learn from halachos, agados, or toseftos. You can only learn from the gumara itself. Now that's a little bit of a, of a complicated line, because let's say we had no Gemara on a particular halacha, but we had a Tosefta. Can you paskin based on that Tosefta? The answer is yes. So another Yehuda says, that Yerushalmi, although it groups together halachos, agados, and Toseftos in one line, they don't all have the same halachic status. Let's take a look at the last paragraph here. Even though Yerushalmi groups those three categories together, the, 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 the intent of that Gemara is not to say they all have the same halacha. He says, The authors of the Tosefta, namely of Oshia, they were obviously writing the Tosefta with halacha lemaisa in mind. If that's going against the Gemara, so we go with the Gemara. If there is no Gemara on this subject, you go with the Tosefta. Avol ha-midrashim va-agados. But when it comes to Midrashim and Agados, Iker kavanasim al ha-musr va-al ha-ramazim va-al ha-misholim shebehem. This is such a crucial line. The Iker kavana of any Agada is the Musr, is the message, is the Moshal that we're deriving from it. V'chol ikr hados, 
They're teaching us the Yisodos of Judaism and Hashkafas HaTorah. But the Agada is not there to pask in Halacha Lemaisa. Therefore, the conclusion of the Noda Yehuda was, you cannot paskin from Magadha at all, even if there's no peace in the Gemara and conflict to the Agada. You can never use it as a source of Psak. Does that make sense? I don't think the Pashab Shadda makes a lot of sense. Anything you don't fully understand, you can't paskin based on, right? When we have Rav Chia and Rav Oshia and they're writing the Tosefta, so then they're, they're telling us in more of a halachic terminology, this is what you do. Now the reason why this is not so simple, and we do find examples where we, I wouldn't say paskin solely based on Agada, but we do incorporate Agada into Psak sometimes. One example would be, and we're going to end with this for today as the hour is late, one example would be this famous question of surrogacy. When you have an egg taken from one mother and the baby is developed and then ultimately is brought into this world through a different mother, halachically speaking, who is the mother? Is it the egg donor or is it the woman carrying the baby? So this has many halachalamaisa applications. First and foremost is, who's considered the mother for kibbut aim? Who do you have an honor, a mitzvah to honor? And Whose sister are you ushered to marry? And furthermore, he says, who will you be your resh? Right? Whose inheritance do you get? Another issue would be if one of the two women were not Jewish. Right? The, the egg donor or the mother carrying the baby. Are you Jewish or are you not Jewish? These are big questions. Let's say the first one, the egg donor, was a mamzeris. Do you have that same status of mamzeris? Or do we say, no, the, uh, the woman who gave birth to you is your real mother? So there are many, many questions, very, very um, lofty, that come from this Shiloh. So what do we do? So many of the posts can bring the Targum Yonas and Ben Uziel, a famous, uh, famous piece where he says, we know that there was a switcheroo. Really, who was supposed to give birth to Yosef? Leah. Who was supposed to give birth to Dina? Rachel. Says Targiyonis and Uziel, through the tefillah, the uber switched around. Yosef, the Shama of Yosef was placed into Rachel, the Shama of Dina was placed into Leah. So theoretically, you could bring a raya from here, right? It's Yosef ben Rachel, and it's Dina bas Leah. So you could prove that the Iker mother is the one who gives birth to the child, even though the conception, right, the start of this, this embryo was in a different mother. It's a beautiful raya. But it's a medrash. And I think the Nanda Behuda would say, this is a classic example of something where we really don't understand what it's telling us. It's from Musr, it's a remez, but to paskin, halacha la based on this chazal is very difficult. So he brings here the Nishmas of Ram, Dr. Abraham, the famous uh, author of Nishmas of Ram, who was very close with many of the Gedoli HaPoskim. He's bothered by this question. He says, Ma she'en lemedim halacha agados. The Yushalmi tells us that we don't learn halacha from agada. 
Zehu rak kishayesh stira mehashas. That's only when it's in contradiction to the Gemara. And he brings out this idea from the Chida and the Rebbeinatam and the Steichemid that many were of the opinion the only time we have a principle not to learn at Halacha from Agada is when it's in conflict to regular Torah Shabal Peh. But if we have nothing in the gamut of Torah Shabal Peh that's going against this Agada, then it's Shaykh to learn maybe not solely from this particular Chazal, but at least to incorporate this as a sniff, as a branch to help us with our psak would be okay. So it does sound like, and this is a much broader machlokus we're not going to have time to get into right now, but the machlokus is, none of the Yehuda tells us you can never paskin from Magadha, period. We don't really know what it's saying. It cannot be brought to the table. Right? The nefesh, the nishmas of Rome is quoting from other achronim, and then they, they made a pshara. The only time you can't paskin from Magadha if it's going against clear halacha in shas. So we have a few different machlokas in here we have to explore more. Mitzvah Shem, next time we'll see the Maimar al-Agados from the Ramchal. Okay. That's a heavy shadow. It's impossible.